Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Open Cities On Demand audio mini-series, A Tale of Two Cities. This is the second tour of a two-part series led by architect and Royal Academician Eric Parry that will visit London's two historic cities, Westminster and the City of London. Eric Parry has built prolifically in both cities and over the course of two tours he will introduce his personal reflections on the unique character of each through a detailed explanation of the development of the designs for his buildings. This second tour focuses on the City of London and will begin at Southwark Gateway Needle, London Bridge and take in Fencourt, including the rooftop garden at 120 Fenchurch. The walking tour will visit key Eric Parry buildings, including St Helens Place and Undershaft, Threadneedle Street and Paternoster Square. The tour ends at Salisbury Square, Fleet Street. This on-demand audio tour has been designed as an audio companion to your walk around London today. There are 11 listening points in this guide, the first of which is a gateway needle. If you lose your way on the tour, you can find each listening point in the episode description below and a full map where you found the Tale of Two Cities tour on the Open City website. Right now, you're next to the gateway needle where your guide, Eric Parry, will introduce you to the first instalment of this tour. Stop 1. The Gateway Needle, on the corner of London Bridge and Duke Street Hill. It's an amazing place, and the question was what to do with this. Actually, the point of it was that this is owned, Colchurch House and the bridge, by the City of London. Basically, Bridge House Estate was set up to ensure that the City of London wasn't deprived of the whole southern connection, which after all was the way that the Roman city worked. So the first bridge was Roman, and I think until the kind of 18th century, it was the only real crossing, otherwise it was get, a, get on a ferry, you know. So, um, and what the, the ownership of the city in Southwark, effectively, on this, the south side, was all about getting commuters backwards and, and forwards. It, it always felt to me like an analogy to how you deal with sewage, you know, a conduit. And they, they you know, you got thrown off the bridge in the morning and went to work, uh, T.S. Eliot, you know, and all that, and you got sucked back across the bridge as a, a commuter. Um, and it was, don't look south, we don't want anything to do with Southwark, we just need that connection. So 
My sort of thinking about this was actually that we should cut the handrail and we should produce these steps so that you've got a twist and a return. That was 96, so this is like the, you know, the turn of the millennium, I guess. And then I wanted something that marked this most, I mean, imagine, that's the most important threshold in London and it looks like that. Unbelievable. So I wanted something to mark the significance of this place. And uh, yeah, there are obelisks and other things. And I, I just wanted to kind of thrash through this axis to mark or give a sense of the wharves below here and to be a kind of marker. So actually it's 25 pieces of Portland stone that are tied together down to a base at the bottom. The only element that is in any way glued is with a dowel at the top. It's the very, very pinnacle of this. It is, I think, apart from being, you know, when you lean stone, there's a lot of forces. So this is put together on a limestone bed and each of these faces are kind of notched in the tradition of great stone masonry. Stereotomy is, is its kind of, you know, goes back to the French were the masters of this long ago. It's about 16 meters high and each of these blocks are interlocking and then have these stainless steel bars inside it. And the lime mortar allows for the flex that it gets through wind, for instance. It was made by a great stonemason, Andre Verona. And there's a little film on our website of his gnarled hands coming back to this, because it's set out not with a computer, but by hand. So it's an immaculate bit of stone masonry, in my, my opinion. In the film, you can see he's looking up at this arras, so you might do the same in homage to his masterful work. And then he, he turns around in the film and he says, oh yeah, you know, Renzo did get an idea. <laughs> Head north on London Bridge Road, over the Thames, until you find the Fishmonger's Hall Wharf on your left. Stop two. Fishmonger's Hall Wharf. I wanted to stop here just to register the Fishmonger's Hall. You can see that the base is in Aberdeenshire granite again, so it's the, the granite, same granite of the bridge, um, and is built in all the disturbance and remaking of, of the bridge, because the old London Bridge actually skirted the church just on the other side, the east side of Adelaide House, which is this big building here. This building caused a bit of a stir because of its, its scale and its interruption of the skyline and St Paul's Cathedral. So it was at its time of making a big, big beast of a building. It's very beautifully made, I think. And then you've got the 60s buildings, which I'm always amazed about in terms of the, the patent ugliness, the, particularly the blue glass one. You know, and then, and then you've got a series of uh, buildings, rather interesting buildings, more interesting buildings in terms of offices. And we're engaged in this building next to the fishmongers, which that will be demolished. The replacement building is an office building, essentially. Its objective is to be highly sustainable using load-bearing granite, 
and timber fenestration. And it's on like a table. So like the fishmongers, at about that level of the balustrading, there's a table that we put in and the office rises above that and below that will be amenity. This is a very antisocial building as it stands. But the point I was going to make, I'm not going into the, the project actually, but I just wanted to make the, the point about the incredible stuff beneath our feet again. Um, so what we have to do with this building is sit very carefully above the line of archaeology, which is very precious. And then indeed, um, above a, a, a drain, there are a series of drains there, they're amazing. So it's this stratigraphy, horizontally as it were, which just marks the, the way in which the edge of the Thames has been dealt with over time. It's amazing. Just all sitting back behind there. So we don't know quite how our cycle store is going to operate until we get more of the archaeology, because these days, you know, it's all about getting cycles into buildings, as I will, I will describe as we go forward. But I just wanted to point that out because you can't interrupt the view effectively of the Thames from the monument. So the monument view is, I, I don't know how many people have sprinted up the stairs there, but it is an amazing journey. Thank you. Right, so we're going to do a little bit of a march now to Fenchurch Street. Head north towards Fenchurch Street and then hook a right through Star Alley, where you'll arrive at the corner of Mark Lane and London Street, opposite the 14th century church tower of All Hallows Staining. Stop three, All Hallows Staining. This is a really interesting space, I think. That building there is the other side of the Clothworkers Hall, which it has a sort of open centre that drops a bit of light down into their dining hall. They're one of the big, bigger livery companies. But I was approached with the question of how this site might develop over time. And there is this rather wonderful tower, the nave of which collapsed in the 19th century. And then a crypt from somewhere near London Wall was relocated next to it. And there's a burial yard in there. And then I brought you purposely through Star Alley, which is like a sort of a broken arm, you know, that is one of the wonderful little lanes that wind their way through the city. And particularly because this, you know, we saw, we started London Bridge, here's Fenchurch Street, which is another one of those arteries of the spokes coming into the city. And you come in here and then you're faced with this, which is an interesting, you know, I mean, you take it for granted in a way. I think the, you know, it's interesting how land acquisition goes. So, um, so what we did, this is an interesting story I'll come to. The first proposition for the building across the road was a tower and a plaza way back. And I remember putting my model down for the first conversation with the planners. And Peter Rees said, oh, it's a nice tower, but not here. <laughs> so what we were doing was agreeing what the scale of Fenchurch Street should be. And I said, it better be an urban block building, but it's a block unto itself. There used to be two buildings, 30s buildings, interwar buildings, and a passage through. It's a pretty mean little passage. So they're very rightly obsessed with the way, you know, the, the lanes and passages and porosity of the city work. So that's, that's very much part of it. 
and my client it went through iterations but my client there was Generali the uh, Italian insurance company and um, on the basis of getting that upper level above what we call the shoulder and we're going to go up there you can see somebody up there there's a garden up there I said look well, uh, why don't we make a publicly accessible garden you know um, this is starting before the walkie-talkie was built actually I have to say um, and they agreed so generally we're happy because they got a little bit more space um, and and I remember the agent saying you know whispering to to the client saying, it's a commercial but you can't put a public garden on top of a commercial building and I still see this guy you know he's a kind of nice man works for CBRE or <laughs> kind of has moved on but so it, it has come to be which is great but the interesting thing it's it's the cloth workers who own a bit of that uh, the jigsaw was really quite a complex one to put that site together the cloth workers own this and in the end they will create a tower on the 10th floor of which which is the shoulder that you see there there is a public garden with a two-story space um, that runs around the base of this so th the, th there's a garden there then there's a garden at this level and then there's a cascade of gardens this is to do with the building it's a very much a green uh, in appearance a green building so it'll be a cascade of, of gardens and the cloth workers take a great deal of pleasure I had to sell that to the would-be tenant um, I had no idea of their interest in gardens but I went into the boardroom of 30 Dürer people you know and started to talk enthusiastically about this and said it's a building that proclaims its greenness it's a building that has a public garden on it it's built to very high sustainability kind of criteria and then they bought it so it's now tenanted by M&G and I had no idea that they were the major sponsor for the Chelsea Flower Show so <laughs> it kind of went down very well anyway so they're in there for, for a period of time so the interesting thing for uh, a, a group like the cloth workers is they've sold the lease of this site to a company called AXA. This was, I think, announced a couple of weeks ago, so it's news, for 250 years. And the deal is that they will, they will build the building, but they will give a shell, the new shell, to the cloth workers uh, to re-inhabit in time for their 500th anniversary. Let's see, uh, 2028. So that's just a, it's a sort of interesting, and actually the, 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 the way you get down to dine, there's, there's a, a big skylight and so on. So that's, that's something that needs to be described. But I think it's really interesting. Historic England were delighted. And they were happy with the scaling because we're repositioning the crypt, as I say, came here in the 19th century as a little museum to this site. So you'll go down, you'll be able to go down to the exhibition in the museum, or you'll be able to go up to that public space on the 10th floor to have your sandwiches, which was always my dream on this one. Next, head 30 yards back north on Mark Lane until you arrive at Fenchurch Street, where you'll find the exterior of Eric Parry's 120 Fenchurch Street. Stop four, 120 Fenchurch Street exterior. The base of the building is like a, you know, a double height, so it's quite muscular. The idea is that it has a base, a body and a top, right? So I wanted it to be a building about, you know, longevity and ceramic. So it is ceramic. 
I always took a German beer mug along to my planning meeting. I usually take an object or something, you know, but it's a white, it's not meant to be white white, it's kind of jug white. The, the horizontal lines are in a, a sort of reflective paint finish, actually, and they, they create a blush. Actually, even on a dull day like this, if you look, the bottom um, four-odd stories have a cold Brisolet and then they get warmer. So you have a kind of colder reflection that becomes warmer. You can see it very, very markedly there. That was the idea, that you, you allow the sun to play against the ceramic. The structure in this is neat in that it's encapsulated in the wall. At every three meters, usually you'd have a wider spacing, so 10 foot. So I scalloped those finials that are not structural, because the ones between hold the structure. Um, these are on a 1.5 meter grid, and so there's a lot of protection in terms of solar gain from the building. I lost in the, you know, the development of the scheme, one of the iterations, it went on for a long time, kind of an idea of uh, having an oculus to the sky. They snaffled it and I had to think again. I said, well, if you do that, then we need something that announces the garden. Take the passage under 120 Fenchurch Street, called Hogarth Court, where you'll soon find yourself underneath a huge digital screen. Stop five, the digital Oculus beneath 120 Fenchurch Street. This is a large digital screen. I always said this needs to be as a public space on these routes about the size of a traditional banking hall. And we would do a digital kind of camera obscura idea. So they can connect with real-time cameras to the garden or to, to views beyond. But this is using the work of some artists. I don't know which this iteration is. It's sound as well. So you really find people coming to work or going home a lot, just pausing, you know, just in the space. It sort of captures the mind. To reach the rooftop garden, scan your belongings through security and take the elevator up to the top floor. Stop six, 120 Fenchurch Street rooftop. Yeah, so what we did actually, having said we were going to put the garden on top as a principle, was to go out to competition to three landscape architects which we ran ourselves and we introduced we had we had the director of the garden museum we had other judges and we had the planners sitting in and we chose uh, Latzen partner it's a very very good German practice who were famous for the um, the work they did in the Ruhr Valley and have a really good kind of pragmatic sense of planting. So the important thing was to produce uh, both the hard landscape so that you can go right round the, the, the block, so to speak, which is very important. We'll ask, we'll give, you know, five minutes to nip round. And at the same time to create a garden that wasn't too water hungry. And it uses a very good system of delivering water to the plants so it's not pure earth it's a kind of it's a composite it's a, it's a very clever composite which is not too heavy you put a garden on top of a building it's massive because of the need for water retention it's all recycled it's 
it's all gathered, recycled, filtered. So it's, there's a good cycle involved, but it's still heavy. They call it the Crystal Garden, and they wanted these this uh, to be a wisteria garden. So we're around four years, I think, after completion, probably. And uh, so there are 80 wisteria plants, all about 12 years old, so they're grown on. Slightly different species, so a lot of work uh, with Q and wisteria experts to extend the the blossoming season is very beautiful and they, they crop back so they've been cut back um, but eventually in another decade at most this entire top will be wooded it's a very aggressive plant very good so then there are a series of uh, of in situ walls that are cast there's heat rejection in the back of that and I'll say that one of the ideas for this was getting up onto a building um, at about 18 stories, a bit further north, looking down saying, God, what is this? You know, the fifth elevation, as we say, of the city of London is totally atrocious. And this is a new horizon, you know, given the taller buildings that are going on above. So um, at the moment, obviously, we've got a building site which is noisy. But really, one of the beauties of this is you come up and it's acoustically, after the street, it's incredibly placid and lovely. Um, you've then got growth that is very nicely managed, fruit trees, other, other ways, climbing plants um, around the, the vertical, and they're very keen on their, their clipped hedges and little rose garden down there, which is they have at, back in a place called Ampertshausen near Freising in Germany is where they're based, part of Munich University Landscape Department. There's that too. So I think it's a beautiful design. And the head planner now said the proudest moment of his career was coming up here and seeing a very large Bengali family having a picnic here. The other thing I think I've just draw your attention to is the very beautiful gauging of horizons. And I, this is the difference between the way a landscape architect and an architect approaches life. You know, they, a landscape architect is always figuring out what a fall is, where the water is going. So they're always thinking about levels very, in a very sophisticated way. We do in section, but we don't have the same concern about how you control water. So what you find is you come out of the lift and you're at this level and they design this water basin, which on the other side is a seat. So you can have people on the lower level and they don't interrupt your views as you come out. So it's a very nice theatre of levels and you'll find this whole thing is undulating rather beautifully. So I, I, would, I would suggest you just enjoy that as you move around. On the 14th level below, there are public loos. So if anybody needs a break at this point in the, in the, in the, the wanderings around the city, this is a good opportunity. Return back down the elevator and north along Hogarth Street. Take a left at Leadenhall Street and the site of one undershaft will come into view on your right at the first corner. Stop seven, one undershaft skyscraper. So here we are. This building was the Commercial Union building. It was one of two and it was a bit of a classic set piece in London. Its, it's fenestration got blown away in an IRA bomb and it's replaced, so it's not the original fenestration, it's close to the original. It's not listed and it is probably in 2024, 
latter part going to come down. Ooh. And there will be a there will be the tallest building in the cluster of tall buildings of the City of London, same height as the Shard that goes up. So we got plan well, it was a competition we got planning permission for. And basically my idea was to set the lifts to the left hand side off centre. You know, you need a something stiff around which tall buildings work because you put the core to one side the exterior of the building was the bracing that gave the building stiffness so we got planning permission for this and um, it's a building design I, I very much like I must say it's sort of it's tall so you can see the undercroft and the connection that's the leaden hall so you can see that big building there is quite a bit lower than this. And on the top, I had an idea, because as I was saying, I used to, I have a 16-year-old daughter, and when she was a, a youngster, she was at the city primary school at Allgate. So I knew every nook and cranny, because I live in, in Golden Lane, you know, between, betwixt and between watch all the development. And, um, yeah, so I, I kind of... Uh, knew a bit about this territory. Um, you can see the lifts are thrown to one side, but I have one idea. I took her class to the top of the Heron building when it was built but not occupied, so that they could understand they had a, they had a project about local community, so they could understand better the madness of the wonderful, you know, kind of medieval fabric of the city. So I thought, yeah, the top of this building should not be about the celebration of commercial building space, but actually should be a education space. So we have two lifts that take classrooms, two classrooms in the air, and I, I set up and then I got the owner to agree to a deal with this, the Museum of London that we would set up a diorama at the center that would give you a changing view of the city of London and then you could walk around the entire building you can see sort of as far as Margate <laughs> and and you would be able to re register you know almost holographically where the city had come from reading through the glass and the amazing capacity of glass so that's the dream it did get planning permission so that's there this was the idea at the top for this uh, center about learning and above that below that like the building we've just been in you would, you would have a restaurant, so they would get some commercial benefit back. It's not a glass building in terms of the way it appears. It's actually got brisolet, so it's got, you know, a surround. It's almost like an industrial building. Uh, so it's, it's white. It's the white night in the middle of the... And it's the undershaft, which it's is like one... It's like the Hancock building in Chicago. Yeah, that's got bracing yeah. of a similar kind, but this has got a, this has got a taper. So if you were to extend the corners, yeah. they would meet at 10 times the height of the building. It's obviously an incredibly important site. Um, it, is, it is number one, City of London, number one undershaft. It is the most important place. It is, it is the, the, the heart of the city cluster. Head north on St Mary Axe until you get to a left turning onto Clerk's Place. Continue left onto Bishopsgate and then left again through a tall passage supported by stone columns, which takes you into St Helen's Place. Stop 8, the Leather Cellars Hall, St Helen's Place. 
So what we did here was to take away the steps for accessibility. Um, there is a grand courtroom on, on one side, a, a reception space, and then a descent. And I'm, again, you know, I would love to, to be able to show you it, but we can't because of time and it obviously needs um, their permission. This is where we are. You can see an animal. So uh, you've got the roebuck, which is the leather sellers, part of the leather sellers heraldry. You come in to a space which is like an entry space. And then you have above that the livery company offices on the first floor there. The other side is all double height. I'm sorry for everyone. There we go. And then there is a staircase that runs down, and it's quite a beautiful thing, down to the dining level. This is St. Helen's Bishop's Gate on the other side. You can just see through there. So there's, there's a, a whole set of rooms that you would expect. A beautiful library, um, some fantastic uh, charters, um, including one from 1444, I think I'm right in saying, Henry VI. Uh, you know, these are one, and it's a wonderful archive. You know, it's uh, uh, it's full of of history, and uh, one of fifty of these in the city. So, as I say, I knew very little about livery companies. It is a fantastic design problem to work with, um, and that charter of Henry the Sixth in Latin, you know, talks about community perpetuity. Um, handing on. So they are very keen uh, on the way in which this was made for future generations. And it's a, it's a wonderful um, community, mercantile community. In terms of entry, they had a pillared entrance on the other side and I wanted this to be open. This is very good uh, wrought metalwork from the fifth hall actually, it's the sixth hall, which is the post-war one. This is the seventh hall. Um, we took out of, out of storage a, uh, an over panel, added to it. This is a bit of a reminiscence. There's a very wonderful um, Slovenian architect, Austro-Hungarian architect called Plechnik. And uh, so Prague Castle and so on. So I designed this almost like a, uh, it's bronze, but this bronze element that's draped like like cloth or leather over the top of this and then this is vitreous enamel to fall so the water on top is taken back and then there are these two tubes that uh, support the cantilever and then above these are flambés so on a night when they're gathering you come into this space which is a bit like coming into the marais you know, somewhere, and you see the flames and they have their flags and then you... you so there's a celebratory... Then day-to-day entrance is on the right-hand side. So we, uh, we were happily not under the sort of skirt of the big building um, uh, on, on the north side at 100 Bishopsgate. So that's uh, in outline what was for me a, a wonderful project to work on. Exit St Helen's Place and take a left onto Bishopsgate. Turn right onto the Threadneedle Street, where you'll soon come to number 60 Threadneedle Street. Stop 9, 60 Threadneedle Street. 60 Threadneedle Street. It must be more than 10 years old now, I think. For me, this is a very interesting building. We're in, we're in the conservation area of the bank. 
There was a lousy building. Well, actually, what, what was this tower was the old London Stock Exchange, by the way, and it was joined with a with a uh, an atrium, you know, a, a conferencing space. So there was no passage, right? The passage was along a, a, a lousy brick wall on between that 60s building and, and this building. But they were separated, so the tower is now a separate entity. And this was a competition that uh, I won for this building. And we'll go down the Vinella because this is a building that works between the scale. I had lots of learning on this between the scale of Threadneedle Street and Throgmorton Street, which is a smaller scale street at the back. But I was very much concerned with how not to do a stone building, actually, but to, here it is. It's actually a, a muscular building in metalwork. Um, the base of the building is the sort of equivalent to Soane's Bank of England base, which is wonderful. Um, and th there are two atria punched into this, so it's a very light floor plate. But this is south-facing, and I'm just very keen to create shading again. And here, it's a lot about the joint. So these units are, are, are made on a 1.5 meter grid. Um, so it's 1.5, then three meters, then six meters. So if you look, this is the idea of these horizontal shelves. And that allows you to go from this very large scale to the tighter scale at the back quite, in quite an elegant way, which I've used since. I wanted an irregularity, so none of the none of these uh, shelves have the same radius. You can see it's playing a game as you go up the corner, and it's a special paint finish actually, which retains its pigment. So, you know, you get a lot of aluminium powder coated, which looks terrible after a few years. This holds its pigment. It's a kind of Prussian blue. It's almost black, but there's a touch of blue in it. And we had an interesting debate again with the planners. This is a trading floor. You've got reception below, which um, doubles in its better times with a good hang of art. Um, and then there is this floor above. And you can never, you know, they, they, the planners knew that you couldn't control traders. They would do awful things. They would just treat it in a, in a kind of very functional way. So the dichroic glass, the first time I use dichroic um, in a serious way in a building, is there to disguise the fact that, the, that you can have a, a kind of changing chaos behind, doesn't matter. And there's a big gap. So the environmental um, glass is set behind and that allows you to read the base as a giant order. So this, this, the grandness of this base and the base of the Bank of England is very important. Continue down Threadneedle Street to Bank Tube Station. Head west along Cheapside Street. Cross over the junction and zigzag through Pannier Alley and Paternoster Row, which will take you to our next stop at Paternoster Square. Stop 10, Paternoster Square and the London Stock Exchange. I'd done very little commercial work when I, I came to this. I'd done one building at Stockley Park, which is a, a park near Heathrow, and enjoyed that. Uh, survived the depression of the early 90s with that building in part. Anyway, we get to 1999 and I think on the 12th of December I got this phone call with a simple question, Eric, can you help? This was Sir Stuart Lipton who was involved in helping 
Mitsubishi who owned this site to manage a master plan and the future of it by a very talented architect, little known, called William Whitfield, who passed away a few years ago. So this was the site of many competitions, you know, with many, many people looking at how they could take what was a, a post-war development. So enter William Whitfield, who had a kind of idea about commercial buildings that would be placed to make the development possible around a public space that would be lowered, that would do all its servicing underground. So this is actually a, a ventilation element to the underground space, which also serves the, the, the Mason's Yard for St. Paul's Cathedral and many other parts, where you get separate delivery to all the buildings behind. His idea was that the buildings could come and go, but the bones of the public space would remain. This is a complete stage set of Williams, actually, that we're looking at. The problem was he'd fallen out with previous architects who didn't like his master plan so much and wanted a standalone building with its own integrity. Then came along a commercial practice and tried to fill the whole thing. Because William's idea was starting with the wonderful chapter house, was that you should spiral, which you can see he's done. He worked with other executive architects. You should be going up in scale, but this should press back and it should make its way around to these bigger buildings at the back. So if you just twist your eye, you know, that's the horizon that he was dealing with rather cleverly. And there are these passageways. There's a beautiful curving passageway on the other side of the building. So I, you know, the, the reason other architects had curdled, either they wanted to use, press it out and, you know, because there's this idea of a, of a bit of a tower there on the building behind the passage we just come down. And then he used to refer to precedents, one of which was Livorno, which has done just that. You've got a kind of arcading around a public space and buildings came and went behind. So, you know, he had a very strong sort of sense of identity. Um, so he had this double height loggia colonnade in mind, which at one point was arcuated and rather like that building probably. Yeah. It's beautifully proportioned if you go down it and look at St. Paul's. St. Paul's is always framed in its entirety from that loggia. So it's a very clever, again, bit of townscape thinking. Now, so I came along and I saw the drawings and I thought, I see. <laughs> Problem. Uh, you know, and um, so uh, my sort of response was an urban one. I think this is one of my early drawings. It's a very odd-shaped plot. It's trapezoidal. You've got two passages. This is that end wall. And you've got a line that runs through, which is about viewing St. Paul's. So it's always terribly eccentric. Um, and I wanted my building to crash through his colonnade and come to the ground with authority there. I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd sussed out Basically, you could have a higher bit here, two atria that light a deep plan, and I wanted a sort of bronze loggia that could be like a light fitting, really. And that went cut across the grain. So William and I had many arguments about this. Uh, but in the end, he changed his architecture, and I had to perch on top, which is why my pavilion, as it were, rests on his building and does not come to the ground. Um, what I 
conceived of here was some very, very strong walls. But you'll see, this is in a particular, you know, actually, if you are into stone, if you go to uh, Portland and the community around Portland, they know, they'll walk here and say, oh yeah, I know that bed, you know, I know where it came from. It's incredibly specific. This is a bed called Grove. And the uh, quarry uh, that had it wasn't selling it, you know, I mean, it, they did, it wasn't liked. And I said, it's exactly what I want for this. And it started a, a bit of a trend because the architects of that building then picked it up, uh, Richard McCormack. But this is actually, it is load-bearing stone. I hate stone that is stuck on buildings as a principle. I hate stainless steel being used to support stone. Stone is about being massive. So what you see here is a 200 millimeter bed. It's just stacked all the way up. I actually didn't want to use um, granite at the base. I just wanted this to be, you know, fabulous scaled. Really fabulous. You know, just very simple. And it's just threaded with precast elements. And then it's got an office grid behind it. And um, so, yeah, it's, uh, I, I love this stone. Um, uh, there is a lot more to say about it, but the principle is piers that are self-supporting that run through six stories and five stories with an, a weave of precast and the cladding is behind that, so it gives a depth. So anyway, this was a commercial enterprise, this building, but I must say this London Stock Exchange decided to move here, you know, out of 40, buildings they looked at um, and it's been their home ever since they've been very successful I think it's fair to say head westwards along Ludgate Hill and Fleet Street until you find a passageway on your left to St Bride's Church along St Bride's Avenue which will take you to Salisbury Court and our final stop on this tour final stop Salisbury Square development the brief for this was could we fit I mean it was competition uh, a new court building to, to house 18 courts, eight of which are to be crown courts, and the other 10 to be a mix of magistrates, courts and civil courts. Could we fit a new police headquarters building for the City of London Police, which was to house about a thousand people, and could we also create a commercial building to feed back a little bit into the city coffers because the city are delivering the court building for uh, His Majesty's Court and Tribunal Service, HMCTS, who will lease the building for 125 years, as is the case with the police buildings. So the police building is also a lease for 125 years. And then the commercial building is the commercial building. There are obviously lots of planning issues, obviously. It's conservation area. We're pulling down buildings in a conservation area to make this happen, which is tricky. My advice at that very early stage was if the city could buy that building on the corner, it would make it possible to arrange these new buildings on site. And they went out and bought it. I was amazed. <laughs> I was amazed. It was what fantastic. Was this building? This building on the what corner. Was this? this was before you won the contest. Yeah, yeah. That, then that was way back. And then we entered. We were, you know, part of a, a number of teams. 
Uh, it was a, a lousy, I can assure you, 80s building. I, I can say that now, and it's, 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 it's London and the street is happier for its disappearance. I hope nobody who worked on it is here. <laughs> if so, my apologies. <laughs> right, so what we then started to work up, I wanted to develop this not as a campus of a single type of detail or building, um, but as three buildings. One building that would face Fleet Street as the court building, a second building that would face the square as the police building, and then the third building on the corner to be the commercial building that was much more to do with Whitefriars Street. So the names, of course, are very interesting in terms of their connectivity with history. There's the Old Bailey, which this court building chimes with. It's about 73 metres wide, so there are all the issues of how one deals with a building of this scale <coughs> around that. And then there's the police building, and then the commercial building. This is in a pressed terracotta, just to start with. I can't give you a lot of detail, but um, I'm really interested in, in that. It's an American tradition, Sullivan et al. Ram-pressed terracotta that has a, has, a, has a kind of, is fired but not glazed, but has an earthy redness, which is part of the brick kind of palette, if you like, of Whitefriar Street. This is a framework that allows us to get light into the cells below on Whitefriars Street as a garden. It, on the other side, is very open, so it's not like the normal kind of mousetrap entrance to a police station. It's a big, wide, open space off the square. There are roof gardens. Inevitably, a court building is like cutting a section through society. It's an amazing sort of structure. So the thing about this is it's about the future flexible use of courtroom. So there's a wonderful example, of course, you go up the road, you get to the Royal Courts of Justice. Every court is allocated to a judge. And so, you know, actually, you don't get a very flexible use of space. This has the judiciary in their offices above. And with those eight crown courts, we have a sandwich which was determined by the HMCTS, which is very good. You have Crown Court on one level, Crown Court below, sandwich in the middle of administration and jury uh, re re retiring rooms. So they can go up and down immediately and they're interconnected. Anyway, that's the court building and it has an um, extraordinary section. The police building, likewise, you know, you've got a below ground. Because there's a six metre fall, you can get your, your service wagons, which obviously also include defendants going in from Whitefriars Street, lower level. They just cut in. So like Paternoster, where you've got all the servicing below ground, the same thing happens here. This is very much a pedestrian-friendly space. You can imagine there are all the problems of security and hostile vehicle mitigation. But um, suffice it to say that's part of, of a complex brief. This is looking at the buildings from Fleet Street. So we have some brides, Wren. We have um, Lutchens, the Reuters building. Then we have our court building, which is inflected. So it's like a kind of urban palace in a way. Um, uh, you know, with a centre and you move through the north 
side is, is, is about circulation, is about getting light into the courts. The thing, I don't know if you've been, uh, for whatever reason, in a court, <laughs> but the most depressing thing is you do not know what time of day it is, apart from bloody clocks. And I, I insisted that these courtrooms should all have natural light. So that has been a really important part of it. I won't take you into a lot of detail, but uh, then you've got the police building and you've got the listed building. So the listed building, we lost a pub and I said, if I could, I'd put a beer cellar under a court building, you know, can't do that, can't do that. So um, what we have to, on the square is the listed building transformed into a pub Ooh. and restaurant. Because to use it for anything else would mean you'd have, to, you'd have to reinforce it so much it would lose its listed character. So we are creating with uh, an architect, Richard Griffiths, a south gable to this, which will be in sympathy to Peebles' work. He's a Norman Shaw uh, student. And it'll be open here and open right next to the cop shop as a place you know, where you can gather. Like William Whitfield's beautiful um, you know, a scale of arcading. What this gave us is, is in, because we've got three different buildings, with a, two of them with a common basement, you pick up these new views. So this is the view that never was, as it were, which is from the other side, looking across to the back of the listed building, which is restaurants and pubs, then above that to the Lutchens building, and above that to Wren. So that's, for me, that, from early days, I wanted to call this Hanging Sword Alley. I wasn't allowed to do that, because there was <laughs> Hanging Sword Alley there. <laughs> I was ticked off for that. But, you know, this is, this is, this is, these are the aureoles for the consultation rooms at the back of the, 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 the court building. This will be one of two passages that are completely new to London. You can see this historical layering uh, if we go round to the other side of the site, but I'll let you do that manoeuvre yourselves, and, and that, that is it, actually. Thank you very much. Thank yeah. you. No. <laughs> when is construction start?